for seven years. They pay rent. They uh, attend the homeowners uh, group. They work with a financial coach and they volunteer for eight hours a month. If they do that, um, after seven years, we give them the home and the property. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman. And I get emails and have conversations with people all the time who tell me that tiny houses are the solution to homelessness and affordable housing. And while they might just be right, not many people have the time, motivation, or resources to actually make something happen. My guest today, Reverend Faith Fowler, is in the process of building 25 tiny homes for the homeless in Detroit. And this isn't just a pie-in-the-sky idea. Seven of the homes are already complete and have residents living in them. So how do you turn an idea like giving away tiny houses to the homeless into a reality? Stick around for my interview with Reverend Faith Fowler to find out. First, a quick shout-out to the mystery person with the username 23072 on Apple Podcasts who says, This is my favorite podcast. This podcast is helping me realize that I can do this. I am so thankful to have found Ethan. 23072, whoever you are, thank you so much. You have no idea how much that means to me. I so very much appreciate that you took the time to leave the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast review in Apple Podcasts. So thank you. Now, let's get back to my interview with Reverend Faith Fowler. All right. I am here with Reverend Faith Fowler. Uh, Faith is the senior pastor of Cass Community United Methodist Church and executive director of Cass Community Social Services, a Detroit nonprofit agency which responds to poverty with programs for food, healthcare, housing, and employment. Cass Community Social Services is in the process of building 25 different tiny homes for the homeless in Detroit. Uh, Faith, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. This is a great honor. I was hoping we could just start with, in your own words, describing what is Tiny Homes Detroit? How did you get the idea for it? And and how did you go from idea to reality? So we began looking for a way to help people who had been formerly homeless, but other poor people too, um, to not only have residential stability, but to have economic mobility. And the home, the tiny home, became uh, the vehicle to do that. Um, we looked at some other models, basically the organizations that use tiny houses in a village model, and that um, didn't meet our criteria of establishing assets. So we began putting together a program design that would allow people, very poor people, but people with an income, to obtain home ownership so that they could um, start to have a cushion to get through crisis times, but also start to have um, more of a middle-class experience in terms of owning a home that could serve as collateral, could be sold for something else, or uh, to leave to their children when they die. Okay, so the, the idea is that you give these tiny homes to people? Well, so here's how the program works. Uh, We have selected uh, individuals who are screened in terms of housing history, financial stability, um, criminal history, uh, interviews, and reference checks. So there's quite a bit of vetting. They have to earn between 
Well, they have to earn at least $7,500 a year. So somebody on SSI disability or some other kind of entitlement would be eligible. Um, they pay uh, rent based on square footage. We build homes between 250 and 400 square feet. So their monthly rent is $250 to 400, depending on the size home they end up with. Um, in addition to that, they have to agree to participate in a program. So for seven years, in addition to paying rent, they have to attend a monthly homeowners group in which they discuss preventative maintenance and other repair issues, how you engage a contractor, that sort of thing. They work individually with a financial coach who's a volunteer to help them make sure they have a budget, that they've dealt with debt, that they have a checking account, a savings account. They also raise the issue of can you earn more money? Generally speaking, in affordable housing, if you earn more money, you pay more rent. Uh, and sometimes that causes people not to disclose they're earning more money, which I think is a bad design. So in our house, since it's based on square footage, if you earn more money, you keep more money, which uh, motivates people to, to pick up a part-time job, even an informal job like doing hair or nails or watching a child or dog walking. You know, if you can earn an extra $50 a month, that's $600 a year. And if you're living on $7,500 a year, that's a lot of money. So then the coach comes back and says, now that you're earning more money and keeping more money, can we make the money work for you? Have you ever thought about a savings bond or a CD at your bank or the stock market? Can, can we help you develop a financial cushion that you keep? It's yours, but in a way you've never earned money before. So all of that's meant so that when they own the homes, they have a financial um, rainy day fund, if you will, for when something goes wrong. Lastly, every month they have to volunteer eight hours to the community. So much like Habitat that does sweat equity while the house is being built, our people do the sweat equity while they're living in the neighborhood. So they volunteer in the neighborhood. They volunteer with the CB patrol or the Halloween party or the Christmas giveaway or, or something that benefits the larger community, not just the tiny homes, but the larger community beyond it so that they get to know their neighbors and, and vice versa. And they are seen as the asset in addition to the houses being uh, pretty outstanding in the neighborhood. So that's the program. For, for seven years, they pay rent. They uh, attend the homeowners uh, group. They work with a financial coach and they volunteer for eight hours a month. If they do that, um, after seven years, we give them the home and the property. They have to join a homeowners association that they help establish the rules with, but so that there's um, stability in the neighborhood. But, but they are the homeowners. They can sell it. They can keep it. They can leave it in a will. It's their home. That's wonderful. I really enjoyed your TED Talk, and there were so many quotes and things in there that I wanted to talk about. One of them, I think the quote was, home is being surrounded by people who you trust and who trust you. Mm. And I was curious. Yeah how in the design of this tiny home community do you foster that spirit? Well, in, in the monthly meeting with the homeowners, they learn to know each other and rely on each other in, in, the, in the sense of a neighborhood in the 50s when people spent time on their front porches and actually looked out after one another. One of our men um, spent time in prison and then came out and didn't have a home to return to. And he ended up in one of the tiny homes. When he gets off work at two o'clock in the morning, he literally walks around every tiny house to make sure everybody else is okay. 
Uh, we've had a woman go to the hospital and another tiny house resident has made sure that she's had meals and is checked on since she's been home. So they, they really have come to um, you know, assimilate together in such a way that, that there is the beginning of a, a neighborhood that feels very old fashioned in a sense, um, but, a, but a community in which they have autonomy as well. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Yes, and it's wonderful to see an example of tiny homes and the benefits associated with them being made available to to people who wouldn't necessarily be able to afford them. Yeah, that that's the thing. Of the first seven homes, only uh, one person had owned a home before. So this is the first time in their life, no matter what age, and the ages go uh, for the first uh, bunch of people from 24 to 74. So none of them had owned a home before. They had spent their whole life renting. So nothing to show for it. No tax benefits, no um, pride of ownership, no nothing they could sell. So it really is transformative for them. And um, we're quite proud of them. As you should be. And so you, you have seven homes built so far. How long have the residents been living in them? So just about a year, and we're adding six more this Labor Day weekend. So we'll have 13. We're over halfway there. We'll start six in September, and we're hoping to be done by Christmas with that uh, bunch. So 20, we're intending to build 25 for individuals and couples, and then we're planning on at least 10 for families, which will be slightly larger. All are slab on grade, so it's not the rectangular version you're used to seeing on trailers. They're, they're very distinct inside and outside. Every single one of them is different, again, to instill pride in people. Uh, so we have a Katrina cottage and a Victorian and a Tudor and a lighthouse and a modern house and a recycle house. So they're all very, very different. And um, that's how they describe them to other people. I live in the one with a metal roof. Or I live in the one with a uh, cultured stone, or I, I live in the one that has a garage underneath it. Pe- people come to see them from all over the United States now, sometimes even other countries. And I think they're amazed at the variety and the beauty of a neighborhood that's intentionally attractive. Absolutely. And I, I, I've only seen pictures of them, but they do look really great. And they don't at all, you know, if you looked at it, you wouldn't say, oh, this is this is a place for the homeless. And and I think it's sad that a lot of times we do create buildings and structures for the homeless that wouldn't appeal to anyone. But, you know, we're kind of saying, oh, well, they're homeless, so they'll take, you know, they'll take what they can get. And so I think it's just so wonderful that these are all unique and something that people would actually want to take pride in. Right, right. As do we. We actually fought initially with an architect about doing it because it's a little bit cheaper to uh, repeat the same model. You know, three different houses just repeated over and over. Right. There's probably some economies of scale there. Yeah. Yeah, there there are. But I'm not sure in the long run that it instills the kind of uh, pride that we were hoping to be part and parcel of this project. I hear from people all the time who are frustrated and um dealing with their local cities and zoning laws. Um, So I can only imagine, if it's so hard to do one tiny house, I can hardly imagine what it would be like to get an entire, you know, 25 houses approved. What was that process like? So actually, Detroit has been uh, uh, terrific in in the process. Um, 
we purchased 26 lots for $15,000 from the city um, before before um, the land bank was involved. So we, we purchased the lot cheaply. Um, and then we're putting a house where houses used to be, meaning uh, one house per lot. The lots are roughly 30 by 100 uh, square feet, which gives uh, people a very nice backyard um, and nice front yard too, but much smaller front yard. Uh, because we're because we're doing that, we don't have to have a variation. Uh, it's a residential section of the city, so we didn't need a variation in terms of zoning. And Detroit doesn't have a minimum requirement, meaning we could have even built smaller. I wasn't uh, wanting to do that because these are permanent uh, structures. Uh, so 250, we actually went down to 250 so that people on SSI Social Security could qualify for home. You don't want to take more than a third of somebody's income uh, so that they're not underwater. You know, um, you want them to have enough money left over to have a quality of life. So with a 250 square foot house, if they're making $750 a month, that leaves them $500 to live on. The only other bill besides um, rent they have to pay is electric. And quite frankly, we're adding solar arrays this summer that will eliminate many of the electric bills and, and, and if not eliminate, at least reduce them substantially. In addition to that, we have a spray and insulation and our, uh, our ratings on the windows that are superior so that they don't have big bills anyway. But once you add the solar, some of the bills will be eliminated for the next 10 years. That's fantastic. So you didn't you didn't take lots and then try to divide them into smaller lots. These were existing. We lots. did not. We we wanted them to fit into the larger neighborhood. So other than the fact that they're small, uh, it's the same spacing as anywhere else in the you know couple miles around us, so that they're not distinctive in that way. And and we wanted people to be able to have pets and be able to have barbecues and um, like a normal house affords you those luxuries, if you will. And we wanted them to have them as well. I'm curious if, I mean, and if you're willing to talk about this, great. How how do the numbers work out? You know, so you're, you've bought each lot for $15,000 and with with people paying off the cost, or I'm guessing some of the cost of the house over the course of those seven years, how much did you have to raise to, to make this reality? So they're really not paying for the houses. Uh, let me start there. We call it rent then own because two things. Rent to own generally means predatory lending where somebody's being taken advantage of. Right. High interest rate. Yeah, exactly. And secondly, um, they're not paying for the home at all. We're raising the money for the homes up front. So corporations, foundations, religious organizations, schools, fundraisers, before a, a spade goes in the ground, we've raised all the money to to complete the house. So when you move in, we don't need your money for a mortgage or to pay off the house that's already been paid for. We use the tenant's money to pay uh, the property taxes, the house insurance, the security system, and the water bill. The reason is if, if you're paying us on time, the right amount for seven years, we know that you have the financial stability not to lose the house. And the two ways you can lose a house in Michigan if you don't have a mortgage is to, to be in arrears on your property taxes or your water bill. So you've got a track record of seven years. I'm fairly confident now that we you stop paying us rent, but you start paying the bills we've been paying with your rent for seven years. 
So we've, we've built in a discipline so that you should be able to own that home as long as you would like. And it's a break-even proposition for us. We did a business plan to project out 10 years to make sure that we could cover their bills or their anticipated bills using their rent money. That's wonderful. I wouldn't have guessed that that's how it was set up, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, it's just simple logic, you know. Um, we could have just given it to them. The, the truth is uh, Habitat, which is a great organization, does, does many, many things I admire, but they're in trouble in Detroit because people have fallen behind on, on paying their mortgages, which leaves them with empty buildings and evictions. And I wanted to make sure we were actually setting people up for success, people who wouldn't have a chance otherwise. Nobody's going to give you a mortgage, not even Habitat, even though they uh, offer interest-free mortgages, which is unheard of that you can't qualify for a mortgage if you make eight, nine, ten, eleven thousand $11,000 a year. And so people are locked out of the, the American dream, if you will. So this was a way to graph them in. I, I liken it to shoots and ladders. You know, you play the game as a kid, you, you hit a shoot, you fall back, you find a ladder, you climb up. Well, for poor people, it's all shoots. And these homes, I, I, I liken to us dropping a ladder. They've got to climb it to show that they're ready to be a homeowner. But we lower the ladder that most of us have in our lives and, and take for granted, that we have people who can help us and financial things happen to us that allow us to survive a crisis or we inherit money if we're middle class or better. You don't have that if you're poor. And so that's the ladder we're trying to extend. And, and I'll tell you what, they get it. Last year on October 1st, my phone was ringing off the hook and, and it was a Sunday morning. And as a pastor, Sunday mornings, I'm fairly busy. And I was not going to answer except it wouldn't stop ringing. And so finally I did. And it was Carolyn, one of the residents. And she said, Reverend Fowler, the world building is locked. I can't pay my rent because it was Sunday morning. She was afraid she was going to lose her house. Oh. I got four calls from four different residents that morning saying the same thing. So they get that they have an opportunity that they wouldn't otherwise have, and they're taking it very seriously. It's just a humbling thing. Given the poverty rate in our country, not only homeless or formerly homeless, but just poor people, we've got to find a way for them to not only have hope and charity, but for them to have opportunity to get ahead. Um, in the city of Detroit, the last census says a, a third of the households in the city of Detroit make $15,000 a year or less. How do you get ahead? So this is one way. It's not the only way, and it's probably not even a perfect way, but it's one way for people to do better. Well, and I commend you because I, I definitely hear from people a lot who say, oh, tiny houses are perfect for the homeless, like we need tiny houses, we need affordable houses. There are a lot of people who have made that connection in their head, but who have not been able to have the resources to have the skills to take that idea and turn it into a reality. Oh, thank you so much. What you were saying before speaks to another theme in your TED talk, which was, you know, house versus home and house being temporary and home being something more, something that has dignity and privacy and autonomy and community. And I, I 
completely see how having people pay rent for those seven years in a way establishes that that permanence and that sense of home. Because if you just handed over the keys and said, this is yours now, like later, then it's you're just giving them a house, not a home. Right. It's just a roof. Yeah, absolutely. And quite frankly, it's made fundraising much easier than I thought it would ever be because almost everybody can relate to the fact I had a childhood home where I grew up and was loved and nurtured. And that becomes an emotional address for me, right? When you're homeless or when you're poor and your um, housing is insecure, you not only lose the roof, but you lose the sense that you have someplace to go emotionally where you can get naked. I mean, you can you can run around your house without clothes on uh, in terms of your body, but you can do it emotionally, too. You can break down or build up or um, let go in a way that you can't if you're on the street or in a shelter or in, in a housing project. You're always being uh, watched and criticized and um I don't know, that notion of home gives you a, a sense of peace, uh, of place, of belonging. There, were, there are people and pets and plants, I like to call it the P, P word, you know, that, that you love and love you and ground you because the world can, can be wicked some days and you've got to come home to um, sort it out and uh, put your armor back on to, to go back out. Um, so we didn't call them tiny houses. They're not houses, they're homes. And it has very little to do with the fact that they're tiny. It's it's that place. Right, the tiny just makes it more manageable and, and more possible to extend the opportunity. Absolutely. And it's better for the environment, of course, which is important to me. Do you have plans to replicate this model further in Detroit or in other cities? Well, we've we've certainly been contacted from all over the United States and about 12 different foreign countries. At, at this point, I'm more concerned with finishing the project here, and we have plans of developing a commercial strip and um, launching a park uh, for the larger community as well. So I, I don't have plans of actually replicating it elsewhere, although plenty of folks have come to ask questions or we have a book that tells the story that, that uh, helps people ask questions that will, um, you know, help determine whether they're ready to or whether it's right for their venue to, to do something similar. So I do, I do believe other organizations will imitate parts of it, maybe even all of it, but um, how many and where I'm not as convinced of yet. I don't know. Yeah, it seems like it's perfect for a place that really needs that affordable housing. And I feel like everybody knows Detroit because it was so hard hit by the, the housing crisis in the late, you know, sure. aughts. Yep. And so, the, yep. you know, the fact that you were able to buy those lots for so little money helped, I'm sure, do this. I mean, it would be a lot harder to do it in a city where, you know, each lot was, you know, a hundred or $150,000. Sure. Absolutely. And the fact that we could do it um, in adjacent lots, a part of our campus didn't hurt either. I mean, so folks living in our tiny houses can, can walk to all the other services we offer if they want. 
So a medical clinic and a grocery store and uh, food services and a gym and jobs and all that, which becomes very pedestrian in a city that doesn't have mass transit is important. But I, I would say also that we've heard from some big cities, LA and San Francisco and Chicago, and they too are exploring the possibility of replicating. And even though the land's more expensive, the housing's more expensive there. So if you have million dollar homes, you certainly think uh, a higher price tag for the property may be doable, may be doable. Um, the other thing I would say is, although we're focused on low-income individuals, other folks have uh, contacted us regarding developmentally disabled adults or adults with autism or veterans. Or So there are other sort of um, populations for whom it would be very uh, ideal as well. Retirees. Uh, I can't tell you how many people have called and said, can we just buy one and move into the community? Well, not, not yet. I suspect when some of the people sell after seven years, they'll sell to middle class uh, folks or young professional folks. And that's okay um, because I believe in all kinds of diversity, economic diversity too. But uh, to begin with, I'd like to, to have it exclusively low-income people, although a mixture of people. Right. And if they are able to sell to a middle class family or person after seven years, then Mm-hmm. In a way, that means that they are being elevated to middle class because their house is now worth that amount of money. Absolutely. And so it's kind of like Absolutely. elevates everyone. It's a ladder, as you mentioned. Everybody wins. Well, that is fantastic. One thing that I like to ask all of my guests are, what are three resources that helped you or inspired you along the way? They could be tiny house related or not tiny house related could be books or movies or anything? Um, well, so we already had an existing organization. So we had built in some resources that other organizations may not have. For, for instance, CAS has, sees 7,000 volunteers a year. I mean, they just come from everywhere to help with our food program and our jobs program and landscaping and building uh, not just tiny homes. So to have those human resources was a huge help to us. Sometimes they're college groups or high school groups or retirees. Many times they bring a skill set that saves us a boatload of money. Um, but just the encouragement, too, and then they go back and tell the story. So that's probably the first thing. The, the second thing I'd say is this whole project with Tiny Homes caused, uh, caused me to be, I don't want to say aggressive, but uh, to ask people for more money. I never in the past would have asked a church for forty or $50,000. And now probably seven of them have written checks for that. Individuals have written checks for that, just walked in and handed it to me. Because I think people believe in the notion of home and because they see this as a way to end poverty, if only for one, beginning with one person or a couple. That so much of what we do otherwise is feeding or sheltering somebody for a day, which isn't a real solution. It's, it's important to do it, but it's not a real solution. The other thing is, in terms of money, we've been very lucky to have small family foundations that have been very generous, and we hadn't really reached out to them before, but now 
a number of them have contributed in significant ways. And then large foundations like you know, the Ford Foundation and GM Foundation. We have a company that's having a 40th anniversary and they've raised $300,000 for us, Epitech, who's never been involved with us before. So it sort of raised our sights on what we could do because people do want to help. They just need to know how. Um, and then I think last with this project in particular, I've learned to trust my own uh, inner voice, if you will. Everybody was telling me build the same house. Everybody was telling me, um, you know, you can't trust homeless people in, in these houses or Detroit's the wrong place to do it or they're going to be cracking. I mean, the negative storm of reaction was overwhelming. And really the reason we wrote the book, in addition to helping people figure out how to do it and where to do it. But to, to answer the critics who um, didn't see that it could work or would work. or um, And that was just probably after 30 years of being in Detroit, finally trusting that I do, do know what people want and I do know what might work. And probably I didn't have that confidence before. So, you know, listen to yourself. If you've spent enough time listening to poor people and uh, not only their problems, but their aspirations, you might actually know something. Well, Reverend Faith Fowler, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. It's been a privilege. Thank you so much to Reverend Faith Fowler for being a guest on the show. You can find the show notes and links mentioned in this episode at thetinyhouse.net slash faith. Did you like what you heard on the show today? Please take a moment to head over to Apple Podcasts to rate and review the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. Believe it or not, your reviews are super helpful for leading other people to find this show. Go to thetinyhouse.net slash iTunes to be directed straight to Apple Podcasts where you can leave your review. And finally, if you're looking for the ultimate guide to planning your tiny house, check out my comprehensive resource, Tiny House Decisions. Tiny House Decisions is the guide I wish I had when I built my tiny house way back in 2012 and comes in three different packages to help you get a jumpstart on your tiny house. Save hundreds of hours of research and thousands of dollars with Tiny House Decisions. Learn more at thetinyhouse.net slash THD. We're offering a special discount for podcast listeners. Use the coupon code TINY to take 20% off any package. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash THD, coupon code TINY for 20% off. That's all, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.